I don't know if you noticed or not, but I, I am missing a shoe this morning. And uh, I am thankfully, I have socks with no holes in them, which isn't a given. Um, and it is the craziest thing uh, that happened uh, this morning. And so here's the story. Um, I was on my way out of the city of Bethlehem. And I was going out in the fields to work this morning. And it seemed like a very normal day. And so I'm heading out to the city gates. And I, as I'm getting close to the city gates, I see a cousin of mine, actually, a guy named Boaz. Um, and he's sitting by the gate. And that's not unusual. It's very normal for him to be sitting by the gate. He's a, one of the leading men in our city, in our community. But he was, he had this strange look. He was scanning the crowd. All of us that were going out to work that day, he was looking intently for somebody. And it looked like that. And so sure enough, he was. He was looking for me. And so he saw me. And he, he locked eyes with me and he made a beeline straight for me. And he, and he got to me and he pulled me aside and asked if we could sit down and talk. And, and I said, sure. And, and, but not only that, he grabbed two of the leaders of our city and he asked them to sit with us. Well, that's kind of strange. I was getting a little nervous. Something, did I do something wrong? Is he upset with me? Is he okay? Is our family okay? Uh, I wasn't sure what was going on, and so, so he, so, but he sat us down, and 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 not like him, he skipped all of the normal greetings, and he skipped all the small talk, and he got right down to business, and that's not like him. But he, but he said to us, he said that that one of our relatives, uh, Naomi, she is the she's the widow of of one of our relatives, Elimelech. Uh, she's the one, if you remember. Back when the famine started, she and Elimelech and their two sons, they left and they went to Moab in search of food. We were disappointed in that decision. But we saw them go and they lost everything and she came back. And so she came back after the famine when the rains came again and she's here. But it turns out she's destitute and she's going to have to sell off the... The, the family's little parcel of land that they've been farming for generations. And so, 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 he's letting me know all of this. And, and, and he went on to tell me that, that I was the closest relative of Elimelech, the sur- closest surviving relative. And that if I was willing, I could buy the land from her and, and help her out. And, he said, he said he had everything ready for the transaction. He said, if I wasn't willing to do it, he was, he was ready and willing and able to purchase the land instead of me. He was the second in line. Well, I thought for a second and I told him, of course I'll buy the land. I, I, I don't want Naomi to go through any more suffering than she already has. And, and it, and it would be help to me, honestly. Because that's good land, and and with the with the rains now, and now that the famine's over, more land would be really helpful to me and to my family, and and by God's grace, with the harvest we've had, I have the means to buy it, and so I said yes. Um, but you're not going to believe what he said next. He said to me, "Here's the catch. Um, if if you want to buy the land, you also have to marry." Naomi's daughter-in-law. And, and here's the problem with that. If, if I marry her and she bore a son, then the land that I bought doesn't really belong to me. It goes to her family. 
And so it's passed to Elimelech's uh, family, not to my own descendants. And here's the real kicker. She's a Moabite. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> and I thought about it for about a half a second. And then I said to him, no, <laughs> I'm going to have to pass. You can have the land. You can have the girl. Uh, I cannot... I cannot allow that much risk into my financial portfolio right now. I don't want to jeopardize my future like that. Uh, I, I relinquish that right. Uh, you, can, you can redeem her and the land, Boaz. And so as is custom, I, I took my shoe off, of course, so you know that, and I gave it to him. And that was to seal the deal and to, to, to officially give him the right to redeem uh, that land and to redeem Boaz. And it was it became official. And so here I am with one shoe, had to return home from the field, couldn't go out. Now i got to find, i got to go shoe shopping. All right, in scene. Okay, that is about as theatrical as you'll ever see me be in the pulpit. Say, yeah, don't, please. That's actually insulting that you would clap for that pathetic uh, scene. My kids will give me no shortage of grief for that, I'm sure. Um, but as I, as I read through this passage this week, and I was thinking about it, and I, you, you think about it through the, I, I was one of the grids was just thinking about it through the eyes of this unnamed man. And you, you think of, you put yourself in his shoes and just a normal day going out and to have this just kind of thrust in his lap and this decision, make a decision, I mean, this, is, this, was, this would have been bizarre. Um, and, and what a strange morning for him. And now he's obviously not the focus of the story. We don't even learn the guy's name. So he's not critical to the narrative. But he, he does play this little bit part in this little story, this little scene from God's grand redemptive story. That's what we're seeing in the book of Ruth. Now, we've said this before, but Ruth is this micro story that's part of God's macro story that He's accomplishing. And so, it's focused in this, in this little book of Ruth. It's focused on this one little family in this one little obscure town of Bethlehem in this one little dark, dark period in Israel's history, the period of the judges. And yet, God is working powerfully and 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 he's doing what he does best and this is the theme through the series that we've been considering he's he's giving beauty for ashes he's doing it we've we've been seeing it unfold he's making a mess marvelous and 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 the story of Ruth it started if you remember in in the ash heap it was it was sin suffering and sorrow and grief and loss and death and bitterness that's how the book began ashes death just despair and and yet light started breaking through in chapters two and three and now we get to chapter four and we see this full reversal beauty for ashes and we get so we get to see this progression in this little story with this little family you know what god does for ruth and naomi in 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 just this one little snap one little snapshot is or excuse me, it is a snapshot of what he's doing throughout history and in the world even today. The fallen, broken, um, 
cursed, sinful world is going to one day be fully restored. That is a hope that we have that's coming. It's, it's going to happen. This is God's doing. He, he is accomplishing His eternal redemptive purposes for this world. And, and so this episode, episode with Ruth and Naomi is just one tiny scene in this much larger uh, meta-narrative that we see God accomplishing. Your life, though, brothers and sisters, it's part of the same story. It's, it's, a, it's the same. It's still unfolding. Ruth is a story that should fill us with hope. Hope. Um, it, it, not because it shows, shows you that if you just wait a few years, whatever bad stuff you're going through, it'll all be over and everything, everybody will live happily and ever if you can just kind of hang on for ten years. That's not, that's not the, that's not the hope that it gives us. What it gives us is, is it shows us that the best is yet to come for the believer. That's always true. No matter where you're at, the best is still yet to come. That's, that's true in this lifetime. If not in this lifetime, it is certainly true in the life to come. And so, so that's what we see. We, God will give beauty for ashes, uh, now in part, but in eternity it will be full and abundant. So that's what, that's what God's doing in this, in the book of Ruth. That again, it helps us understand that, that larger story by focusing on this one little bitty scene in it. Just a couple other thoughts before we really get into chapter 4 this morning. A couple other thoughts about what Ruth tells us about God's great, universal, unfolding, redemptive purpose. One is this. It shows us that God never takes a break from His work. He never takes a break. Never calls a time out. Never has to go sit down and rest. He, he, he never stops. Not even during the darkest periods in history, like the period of the judges in which the story is set. He he never stops. He's always at work. Even in the darkest periods of your lives, brothers and sisters, God is at work. He He is not turned away. He has not fallen asleep. He is active. He is involved in the details of your life. He is working. It gives us hope. Second, Another thing that this shows us is that his cause, God's cause is being advanced even when life seems rather ordinary, boring. <laughs> when, when there are no miracles, when there are no widespread revivals, when there are no prophetic utterances, because we don't see those things in Ruth. We, we don't see these large-scale, big, showy events we see some of those in Scripture, but they're not in this little story. And yet God is working in the ordinary stuff of life, in Ruth and in your life and in my life. God is at work. He is furthering His cause. He's providentially working and moving that redemptive story along. No matter how ordinary, no matter mundane things seem, He's working. And the third observation I would just say before we start in chapter 4 We've talked about God's kindness, His hesed, loving kindness, covenantal, loyal love, that covenant faithfulness. It's not only seen, this is what, it's not only seen, that hesed is not only seen in, in large scale national deliverances, though you do see it in scripture. It's also seen in, in the way people treat one another in normal life. You, you see God's kindness. The same 
powerful, loving kindness of Yahweh, that Hesed, that part of the Red Sea, is the same Hesed, that same loyal love of God that so moved Boaz's heart to show generosity to Ruth and Naomi. It's the same kindness. It's the same kindness that moves Brooke to forgive me when I sin against her. It's the same kindness that moves friends to encourage one another when they're having difficult times. And so we see again in the very ordinary, the very, just the, 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 the lives changed by the kindness of God that that is, that's extraordinary. And, and don't minimize that. And so we get to see it on display in, in, in the book of Ruth. So chapter 4, we get to see again this redemptive work of God kind of bust open for us here. It's, we see redemption in action. And in this chapter, we 15 times we see words like buy or purchase or redeem, acquire. So we're talking about redemption. And so to set it up, last week, we, you remember in chapter 3, I don't have time to go all the way back to the beginning, but... Chapter 3, remember Naomi devised that plan for Ruth to have this connection, this contact with, with Boaz and this midnight rendezvous um, on the threshing floor. So, so she was to make herself attractive and take a bath and all that stuff. She was to watch and see where he laid down to sleep. She was to uncover his feet so that the night air, the cold night air, he would wake up and find her there at his feet. And So she did all that and she did more because when... He woke up, she said something that Naomi didn't even, Naomi did not tell her to say, and she said to him, spread your wings of protection over me in marriage. And so she, in a sense, proposes to Boaz right there. And Boaz accepts that proposal, and we applaud, and we we have this sense of relief, and that everything looks, it's coming together, and this is good. And then there's some tension that's brought into the story. We saw this last week. Boaz informs Ruth that he will marry her and he will fulfill the duties of the Redeemer, but there's a problem. There's a closer relative. There's someone ahead of him in line. There's this, uh, there's this unnamed man that, that is ahead of him. And so he tells her in chapter 3, verse 13, Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So Ruth goes back, tells Naomi the next morning all that's happened. And Naomi says to her, verse 18, Wait, my daughter, Patrick alluded to this, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. So what happens? That brings us into chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll look at the first ten verses this morning as the plan. So the first thing that happens is there's a meeting. There's a meeting in verses 1 to 6. And, and, and I want to notice a few things about the way Boaz acts in, in, this, in this meeting. First thing is he does, he acts immediately. He says in, at the end of chapter uh, 3 that, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. But he, and, and he does. He acts immediately. He knows, he knows that God is at work. He knows God is involved in all of this. But that awareness doesn't lead him to passivity. We, we made this application last week. So I won't linger here. But he acts quickly. He seizes this God-given opportunity to, to take her, to take that land, and to possess it and to redeem it. So we, we can sometimes, as I said last week, we can sometimes use the sovereignty of God and the providence of God as an excuse for inactivity and passivity. That, that let go and let God and, 
and, and God's at work. I don't want to get in the way, so I'll just do nothing and watch. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not how Boaz is act. He acts immediately. There's action. There's immediacy. Second thing we notice, he acts strategically. He acts strategically. Verse 1. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now, why is that strategic? Well, if, if Boaz wants to find this particular guy, the place he's going to find them, he's most likely to find him, is at the city gate. Because people were going, that's, that's where, that's where the, the place where people meet, that's the place where, place where all people pass as they go out into the fields, and so, it's just like the, the city center. Um, and so that's where everything happens, socially, politically, uh, judicially, uh, that economically, everything happened at the gate, the city gate. This is kind of the town square, but it's, it's, it, in that culture, it's at the gate. And so people would be passing by. So he uses, he uses a normal means of thinking. He uses logical steps of action, common sense. He knows that this man will pass by, that the leaders will be there, and so he goes to the gate, and that's what he does. And I, I just say an application for us is God generally uses common, normal means, common sense means in accomplishing his work. And, and, and we saw this with Naomi last week in the planning that she made for that arrangement with Boaz and Ruth. We, 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 we see that providence and wise planning are not at odds with one another. And there's lots of places we could look in the scripture. We saw, we saw this in Nehemiah, and I know the students were there not long ago, and we were there uh, a few years ago now. But just, that, that's not, that's not a, those aren't at odds with one another. Uh, it's not unspiritual to plan or to strategize. Um, it can be, but it's not necessarily. It's all about the motive, motivation. What Are you trusting God in those planning? I, there's, a, there's a quote that I often read when, when our elders go away for our annual planning retreat. Um, uh, there's a quote by Jay Adams in his book called Shepherding the Flock of God. And I'm just going to read an excerpt of that longer quote, but I just give you, give you a sense of this. He says, well, God may choose to break out beyond our plans and programs, and he is certainly able to do that. The Spirit thereby does not call us to abandon or to become careless about planning. When we not only plan, but also submit our plans to the Spirit for his blue penciling, we do well. Good leadership, planning, and management in the church of Christ are not merely tolerated or permitted, but required and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. To put it tersely, tersely, biblical administration is spiritual. And so, so I think, again, we see even some of this. that God is just using normal, logical, common sense means to fulfill His purpose. He goes to the gate. He goes where He knows He's most likely to make this happen. Third, the way we see he acts, he acts providentially. In verse 1, And behold, the Redeemer of Boaz had spoken, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And wouldn't you know it? <laughs> We've seen this expression before in, in Ruth. And, and it just so happened that as Boaz was there, that the man that he was looking for came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So God's providence is involved in Boaz's actions and Boaz's planning and Boaz's strategizing. So God is working behind the scenes, moving these two men to meet at this point, at this particular time. So God, God is in it. He's working. Just as Ruth luckily stumbled on the field of Boaz, just as, just as, um, 
just like that, this near relative just happens to pass through the gate at the right time. And then fourth, he acts with integrity. He acts with integrity. It's shown, you see it in the, the witnessing elders. Um, he, he, he's, he's obviously a man with a good reputation at the gate among the people of the city. We've seen this already in Ruth, and he's one of the leading men in the city, has a good reputation, a worthy man. And, and so that's very clear. But verse 2, and he took uh, two men of the elders of the city and said, uh, sit down. Um, excuse me. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he deals with this matter publicly, not behind closed doors, not secretly. He's not, he's not trying to do anything um, kind of a little shady. He's, he's, he's not lying. He's not bribing. He's not manipulating. He's doing this openly. He's acting with integrity. And it's shown in his statement of his case. Verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So he doesn't color it. He's very straightforward in his presentation of the situation. He clearly wants to redeem Ruth. He loves her. He wants to marry her. That's unquestionable. But he's fair. And he's honest. And he's patient. And he shows integrity. And to the extent where this man, this unnamed man, John Doe, says, I'll do it. I'll redeem her. I'll redeem the land. It makes good financial sense. It's a good deal. Sure. And then he, then he gets the fine print. <laughs> Verse 5, And Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz says, This is a package deal. It's not either or. It's both and. You get the land. You get the Moabite. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he thought it looked a little too messy. <laughs> a little too complicated and thorny here. It's not worth the complication that this would bring in his life. And so he passes on that right of redemption to Boaz. And then, so that's the first thing. There's a meeting. That's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens, there's a pledge. There's a pledge. And we see this in verses 7 to 10. Boaz is, first, he's formally given the rights of redemption. And so you have this ceremony of the sandal. I know this is very romantic, isn't it, ladies? This is, this is great stuff, isn't it? A stinky old, dusty, dirty, sweaty sandal. Um, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. This symbolized this, this, that he was renouncing his right to redemption. 
And probably the idea, what's being communicated here, is it's, it's showing right of possession. You, you have the right to set foot on the land. I think that's, that's most people think that's probably what's, what's communicated by this particular uh, picture of the sandal. You, it's your land, you can step on it, I'm giving that to you. And so they give the sandal. I don't know if he gives it back, if it's just a ceremonial thing, or if he actually walks away with one shoe, I'm not sure. Um, but all, but we see his integrity pays off. His patience, his integrity, his, his godliness, and, and, and so you have this public above board way of, of finishing this thing. And so, secondly, Boaz formally purchases the property, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought, I have redeemed from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And all that belonged to Kilion and Malon seals the deal. And then finally he claims Ruth as his wife. Verse 10, And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought, I have redeemed to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. And so they're finally, officially engaged. <laughs> not, not, not the romantic uh, um, ceremony or way that you may envision it, but you can hear wedding bells in the distance. Charlie, Megan, I don't know where you're at, but you can hear wedding bells in the distance now, can't you? Yeah, June probably seems like an eternity away. Not to your parents. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> and, and so this is exciting stuff. Um, we, we, you can't help but smile as you read this account. See how things are coming together now. But let me, let me remind you of one little upsetting detail in the narrative that you may have forgotten. Because this takes us all the way back to chapter 1. As far as we know, Ruth is barren. She was married to her husband for 10 years and never bore a son. And so we're left wondering, is it even possible for her to bear a son to Boaz? We don't know. We don't know if she's infertile. We don't know if there was other issues with her husband. Could there really be no child? Could there be no descendant after all? After all of this? So, so, so it's, it's not over yet. There's still some uncertainty. I, I'm going to throw a quote on the screen. This is from John Piper. This is actually from a sermon he preached on this passage. And I just think it's a great quote. I just read this last night. And he, he said this, The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. Life is one curve after another, and we never know what's coming. But the point of the story is that the best is yet to come. No matter where you are, if you love God, the best is yet to come. And this is, this is one more curve in the story. And you're going to have to wait until next week <laughs> to see how that is resolved. Well, in the time we have remaining... I want to I want to zero in on um, some parallels that I, I think need to be drawn between Boaz and between 
our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Um, the story of Ruth is, in some ways, it's a prequel to, to Christ. Now, Ruth was written, again, long before Jesus was born. So it's not like um, the Old Testament is written um, retroactively after Christ. So we're trying to make all these things fit. No, um, the, the Bible is not that. The Bible's written many authors, but one divine author. It's all woven together. So everything is flows. Everything's pointing to, but everything's moving to, to Christ. And so it's getting us, the story is getting us to anticipate what Jesus Christ is like and what his gospel is like. So, so we, we have in Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, we have him in this role pointing to Christ as the, the great kinsman redeemer, the fulfillment of that role. And obviously it's, it's from Boaz's and Ruth's marriage that we will have this great redeemer come, Christ, and we'll and see that really clearly next week and, and really in the weeks to come as we turn to Advent. But just a few things, a few connections that we see between Boaz and Christ. The first thing is that Boaz pictures Christ and the meaning of redemption. And the meaning of redemption. That redemption means to set someone free by paying a price or something free by paying a price. So it indicates that something or someone is in bondage and, 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 or, or in jeopardy. And so the Redeemer comes along, pays a certain price to, to set them free. And so in Ruth's case, there, there's land that's in jeopardy of coming under someone else's control. It's going to go outside of, of any other family and, and outside of that tribe. And so there's, it's in jeopardy. Well, you, you consider our context and you get to the New Testament and what's the, what's the picture? Is it that, that we were born in bondage to sin? We were, we were born in bondage to the course of this world and to the flesh. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There, the scripture talks about enslavement, bondage. Do, do you realize that? Do you realize that you really were in bondage? Do you remember what it was like to wear those shackles. <laughs> remember that. Remember how I felt. What life was like. Not just an intellectual understanding of your former life. Yeah, I can, I can look at the scripture and I can see how it's described. No. Can you remember it? Can you see it? Can you, can you feel that? Um, I know, I know and, and, and maybe you're here this morning. You, you, don't, you have not believed in Christ. And you're checking things out. I appreciate you. We're thankful for here. you're here and we're honored to have you with us today. But maybe as an unbeliever you're thinking, that's not me. I'm not in bondage. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm free. I'm not enslaved to anyone. No one, nothing controls me. But Jesus dealt with that, that sentiment in John chapter 8. We've been preaching through John for some time and took a break to to be in here in Ruth, but in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 34, that kind of question comes up. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, they had been enslaved, if they knew their history. But it's deeper than that. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we're all born practicing sin. We're all born enslaved to sin. And it seems sometimes that the more people clamor for freedom, the more evident their bondage really becomes. We can see that in culture today. 
But Boaz, he pictures Christ in the sense that he, he paid the necessary price to set us free from catastrophic bondage. That's what Christ has done. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says, Knowing that you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We've been, with the price has been paid. That, that meaning of redemption is fulfilled in Christ. We have been purchased. We've been set free. We've been redeemed with, by, by the payment of a price, and the price was His blood. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to Christ to the, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, there's a picture of Christ and the very meaning of redemption is, is foreshadowed by Boaz. Second, Boaz pictures Christ in the marks of the Redeemer. In the marks of the Redeemer. There were qualifications to be a Redeemer. And we've, we've seen these, but we haven't maybe isolated them as we'll do now. First of all, the Redeemer had to be a blood relative. So we've seen that expression. He was a, he was a close relative. He was a, one of the kinsmen redeemers. He was eligible. This was part of it. He had to be a blood relative. Naomi, remember the hope that fueled her when she heard that Boaz was the guy that Ruth went and gleaned in the field. Oh, he's one of our close relatives. One of our redeemers. Well, how's that, what does that mean for Christ? Well, Christ, Christ had to become a blood relative. He had to become like us in every respect. And He did. Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he, he took flesh and blood he became like us again in every respect. So that qualified him. Second way, the mark of Redeemer is that the Redeemer had to be free of debt himself. He couldn't be carrying debt. In order to pay another's debt, you can't have accumulated all this load of other personal debt. You need the Redeemer. No. And what do we see of Christ? Well, Christ had no debt of sin. He had no sin. Hebrews 7.26, Christ is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So He knew, he knew no sin. He, there's no debt that Christ paid, had. Third mark. The Redeemer had to be able to pay the ransom price. He had to have the means. Boaz was a man of great wealth, we've seen. He had the necessary means to buy Elimelech's property. Well, bring that to Christ. No one was rich enough. No one has ever been rich enough to pay for our redemption but Christ. And, and, and we're not talking about the financial means. There, there's no amount of money could purchase Salvation, it, 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 a, sinless, a sinless sacrifice was required. And only Christ fit that. Only He was able to pay 
the ransom price. A sinless man for sinful men. But it goes further than that. Another mark, and we see this in chapter 4, is that, that the Redeemer must be willing to pay the ransom price. Not just have the means, but have the willingness, the desire to do so. The resolve. Remember the nearest kinsman, he had a choice. We saw this just a minute ago. The problem wasn't money. He just didn't want Ruth. He didn't want the burden. He didn't want that risk. So he was unwilling. Not unable, but unwilling. But Boaz, on the other hand, Boaz loved God. And he loved Ruth. And he loved Naomi. Loved their family. He was willing willing to risk everything to redeem the land and to, to redeem Ruth. Well, Jesus, he didn't have to die for us. You understand that? No, no, there was no, there would be no injustice on God's part um, if 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 we suffered and, and and perished for all eternity in hell. Zero injustice. If He owed us salvation to any degree, it would not be grace. <laughs> but it is grace. Only grace. But but you have a willing Savior. He was willing. He was not reluctant. He did not die reluctantly. He laid down his life freely. Scripture says no one took it from him. He willingly gave his life as a ransom for many. It was the richness of God's mercy. It was the enormity of his love, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, that he was willing to be our redeemer. It's God's love that explains redemption, that explains the cross. He's willing. And then finally, the Redeemer, in this case, had to be willing to marry. Had to be willing to marry. First kinsman was willing to buy the property, but unwilling to marry Ruth, and to join himself to her. But we have a kinsman in Christ who did not just take away our sin, but he joined us to himself. We have union with Christ. That is, that is a glorious uh, inheritance that we know. That's something we know now. You, right now, are one with Him. That's not a future thing. That is, that is something we know now. And there will be future enjoyment of that in ways we can't even comprehend. Yes, but, but, but it's, a, it's a reality. It's an objective reality now if you, are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ. You have union with Him. John Murray uh, wonderfully said this, of this truth of union with Christ. He says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. So, so as we're talking about redemption, and we often, and often our singing it kind of stops there. We, we talk, we're thankful for our sin is done with, the debt has been paid, but it's more than that. The whole reason the debt was paid was so that we could be joined to Christ and have this relationship with Him. This is, this is God's design. This is, this is what everything was leading, us, leading to so that we could, could know the adoption as sons, daughters of God. That's, that's what He was brought into His family. Union with Him. Third and final way that we see, well, there, there are other ways, but, but, but we're going to identify today third way is that Boaz pictures Christ in the method of redemption. In the method of redemption. A redeemer could have understood the concept of redemption, 
could have had the means to, to redeem, could have met the qualifications of the Redeemer, could have had all those things in place, but he actually had to do it. <laughs> he actually had to pay the price. But do you, have, do you have eyes to see that what was happening some 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem? You see, see what was taking place at Gethsemane, at, 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 at the mock trials, at the beatings, at the cross, with his slow death, with the darkness that fell. Did you see what's taking place? He's doing it. He's, he's purchasing. He's actually paying the price for your freedom. It's, it's not theoretical. It wasn't just like an IOU or, or uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I know that blood has to be shed and, and so I'm God and so yeah, okay, I'm willing. It wasn't just a willingness to shed blood to redeem. No, he actually had to happen. And he did it. He, he actually did it. So, so what does that mean to us? We had better not take our freedom lightly brothers and sisters. It was purchased at great cost. And I want to draw out a few implications of that. And we'll close with this. A few implications of these truths. All of them cause us to to remember. I want us to, to, to remember. First thing is this. Remember what you have been redeemed from so that you will not redevelop a satisfaction with sin and darkness. Remember what you've been set free from, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that you should spend all your time dwelling upon your past and your sin or even your present sin and how bad you were. And that's not my point at all. But, but we do need to remember the gravity of our deadness and our blindness and our darkness that we were saved out of. The Apostle Paul gives us a good example. He often does this. He, for in his own, as he shares his own story and as he calls the church, remember, remember how you were. You were dead. You were enslaved. He didn't linger there, but he, but he has him go, remember, don't go back. Why would you go back to that? Be satisfied in Christ. Think of, think of what he's done. And, 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 and so we need to be increasingly satisfied with Christ decreasingly satisfied with sin. I think that's one implication of this. Another implication. Remember how you were redeemed so that you remember that your life is not your own. Remember how you were redeemed. You did nothing to earn your freedom. Nothing. Because you couldn't do anything to earn your freedom. You didn't have that ability. None of us do. You were purchased. You were bought by another. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Christian's life was bought with the precious blood of Christ. He took your place. He died as your substitute. He paid for your sins. And so, so we've got we've to rehearse that often to ourselves. We've got to preach that message to ourselves daily. And, and, and that you and I did not earn favor with God. God did that in sending His Son. It's His doing. It's by His doing that we're in Christ Jesus. So, so therefore, because I'm purchased by another, a price was paid that I could never pay, then I am not free to live how I want to live. I'm His. That's not a, that's not a, 
That's not bondage like before. Well, I just trade one slavery to another. That's, we're set free to serve Christ. We have a loving God that wants nothing but our good and His glory. And, and this is, it's liberating. And then third implication. Third thing to remember. Remember the purpose for which you've been redeemed so that you will not live a life of lethargy and indifference. Christ saved you, made you His own, joined you to Himself and Himself to you and so that you would glorify Christ in everything you do, everything you say, everything you think. This is, this is the purpose. So the truth of redemption, it should change us. It should change the way we look at life, the way we live our lives, the way we, we, we talk. It should change everything. The way we think. Uh, you, you, you who are going to be going back to your job tomorrow morning. It should change. The, this truth that we're considering today should change the way you work tomorrow. In, in countless ways. I'm going to give you a couple. It says, I'm, I, don't, I don't work to make a name for myself. That's not why I'm going to work tomorrow. That, that's different than a lot of people. It's different than the way that it used to be for me. I don't do that anymore because I'm purchased, for, I'm purchased by Christ for Christ. I live to make His name great. So everything I do, even, even my, the most mundane tasks at work tomorrow, I do not, not to, to, to look good in the eyes of others, but I do it to, to, to bring all attention to Christ. Another way, I, I don't work to get rich. It's not just about the money. That's not, that's not, all, that's not my only ambition. I, I deserve nothing. I have earned nothing. Christ sustains me. He provides for me. I trust Him. And so I, I work and I'm thankful for the way those resources that God gives, but that's not, my ambition is different. It's not, it's not what's driving me. So it changes. Redemption. It's true of redemption. It changes the way you work. It changes, should change the way you talk to your children, parents. It should change the way you love your husband, love your wife. It should change the way we relate to one another. It should change the way we serve in the church. It should change the way we interact with our neighbors. It changes everything as we get hold of this. So I just play the, play the what if game here and go back to the beginning here with me. What if that unnamed man, what if that shoeless man said yes? I'll do it all. It certainly would have made for a disappointing ending to this story. <laughs> and there would have been a lot of oh, because we, we want this to work out the way it does. And, but what else? I, I don't know. I don't, humanly speaking, maybe Maybe this other redeemer, I mean, clearly he was a blood relative, and so maybe the, the line would have gone on, but I, I, I mean, maybe not. Um, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have been able to conceive, I, I don't know. But what the Spirit of God, the divine author of Ruth, wants us to see is this, is God is relentlessly, tirelessly working to preserve that line. And, and he's orchestrating all these twists and turns of, of, of providence so that Ruth and Boaz will come together and they will have a great-grandson named David. That's, a, that's how the book's going to end. And even more, there would be a great-great-great-great-great-on-and-on-grandson who would be the son of David, Jesus. Born in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary. Our Savior, Christ the Lord. That's what the story leaves us looking for. 
That's where, that's where we're leaning when we finish this. In some sense, we see beauty for ashes encapsulated in this little story, and we see this great reversal in Ruth and Naomi's lives. But there's a, there's a greater beauty. Ruth and Boaz are, are still lacking, and they're still, still longing for, there's still something missing, and there's still, there's still gonna be something that's unsettled even as this book ends, and it's this hope of Messiah. This great deliverer that we still we're longing for, as any righteous Israelite would. Now on this side of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, we, we, we get to see a bigger picture than they saw. We get to look back on that coming. We get to look back on joy dawning upon the world and the birth of Christ and, and, and this, this one who was given as a ransom, given to be a ransom, uh, for God to, to reconcile God and man. We get to see that. Um, even so, I said earlier, the best is still yet to come. Story's still going on. There are still ashes this side of the empty tomb, aren't there? And, and there will be, but there is a day when, when there will be only beauty on the other side of eternity. And the ashes will be gone. And that's true for all those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who have trusted in Him. If you have not trusted in Him and you're here, you're listening, you've got questions, I would love to talk to you or talk to someone around you. We'd love to share more. But let's pray. Father, thank You for this great truth of redemption. Thank You that through that redeeming work of Jesus Christ, we have been joined to Him. Thank You that we're joined to You, Christ. May we live this week in light of that and and, and, and may, it, may it change the way we're thinking. Even going into this time of year and Advent, God, give great joy and hope to our hearts no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how deep the sorrows are and how real the pain is and, and lives in this room, God, may you set before us the hope that, that the best is yet to come. There is, there is there are greater, there's beauty ahead that awaits all those who trust Christ. An eternal, rich, lasting beauty. So so keep that before us. Keep Christ before us, God. We ask in His name. Amen.